Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. And today, our guest is Ethan Brown, the founder of Beyond Meat, who is trying to save the world by getting us all to eat less meat and more plant-based products. Ellen, you you on for that agenda? I am on for that agenda, although I did miss the conversation. But if I had been there, I would have told this story, Alan, about how Beyond Meat saved our family barbecues. How's that? Strange story. My husband developed a an allergy to meat in the middle of his life as an adult. We, we think it was from a tick bite. And um, he's, he's now allergic to all animal protein. Um, wow. Fish and fowl are fine. Meat, no good. And actually his throat closes. It's really dramatic. And Beyond Meat has just been a wonderful part of our, our, of our meals ever since. Wow. Well, Ethan surely would have loved to hear that story. His goal is to make us all like your husband, that we're all going to eat uh, plant-based products because we love them, because we love them, not because we have to. Let's dive in. So take us back. You've been doing this for a decade, but how did you get here? How did you get to the plant-based meat business? So when I was in in school, I, I sat down with my father uh, who's a professor, and we were kind of talking about what I should do with my career. And I was explaining that I, I you know, was, was struggling to find the right avenue to pursue. And uh, he asked me a pretty simple question. He said, well, what's the biggest problem in the world? And I thought about it and I came back to him. I said, well, I think it's climate. Because if uh, you, know, you can be a terrific you know, doctor or musician or make a tremendous contribution to society, but if, if the world is unstable because of the climate, uh, those things are going to be compromised. And so I feel that's the most compelling problem. And, uh, and he said, well, okay, think about how you can address that. And so I went into the energy sector as a result. And I worked a long time for an absolutely terrific company called Ballard Power Systems uh, that was making and is making proton exchange membrane fuel cells. And uh, I learned in that process uh, about how to attack a global problem. Right, and the type of infrastructure you need if you're going to use technology to try to solve problems. But as I was doing that, I began to learn more and more about the role that livestock plays in climate, the role that livestock plays in, uh, in natural resource conservation and use, and then ultimately uh, the, the role that uh, animal protein had in human health epidemics of, of heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. And then lastly, I had a tremendous amount of exposure as a child to agriculture because of my father's interest in farming. So I was very uh, much fascinated by animals and particularly the animals in, in the, the forests and the streams and, and things of that nature, but also in the barn and in our home. So, so you, hit, you hit all three of the reasons that people turn away from meat, environment, health, and love of animals. Yes, or, or and the love of animals is an interesting one. I, mean, I certainly do love animals, but I also try to be as best I can an integrated person. And so if I think about uh, trying to limit the amount of suffering I cause in the world, I don't limit that to humans. Uh, I try to draw a broader circle. And so it's, it's not just about compassion, but about fairness for me. Yeah. Are, are you yourself a vegan? I am vegan, yeah. I've been vegan for a very long time, yeah. An important part of this is you said you cared about the climate. There are lots of ways you could potentially have an impact on the climate. You could go into government. You could go into NGOs. You could go work for the United Nations. Uh, you could do what your father did. And he, he was a university professor, right? Did I catch he, that right? He still teaches at McGill, yeah. 
Yeah. But you decided to go into the for-profit sector. Can you talk about why? Yeah, sure. So, so the first job I was ever offered out of school uh, was actually at the general accounting office. Uh, and, and I found that interesting because I cared a lot about how government was addressing the issue of climate and environment. And so the you know, general accounting office is kind of a fun place. You investigate these government programs and see whether or not they make you know, sense. And, and uh, but I remember sitting in my final interview, I was offered the job and uh, I asked the, the head of the department I was going to be working in, who had been the general accounting office for 30 years, I said, how much has the department of energy changed throughout your career? And he said, well, not much at all. And so I just said, I got to get out of this building. And so I left and I started a nonprofit on my own uh, that dealt with some of the same issues, but ultimately got frustrated with the pace of change that I was seeing uh, in the nonprofit sector. And so went into to business. And I had a, um, a lot of role models that were in business and I was very early uh, sort of fascination with Warren Buffett. So I had reasons that I wanted to get into business that were independent of the kind of social change I was looking at. I enjoyed it. But you, you came to the conclusion that you could drive social change better in business than in nonprofits or government. hundred percent. I mean, my view is that government, you know, we, we have to get money out of Washington and until we accomplish that goal, it's a very, very frustrating avenue to affect real change. Yeah. Well, you've had amazing success with this company. Uh, it's now worth close to $8 billion. You're, you're rolling out new products all the time. But compared to the size of the problem, you got a long, long <laughs> way to go. Uh, what is it going to take to put your products on a par with the uh, good old cow-driven hamburger? You know, we have 150 research scientists here and technicians and engineers. And I tell them as long as they keep doing the great work they're doing, this is a lifetime employment project for them. <laughs> we do have our work cut out for us, as you've noted, um, even though we work with great urgency. And so I'll just, I'll just unpack a little bit how we address this problem. So our uh, research center is not called the Beyond Meat Innovation Center. It's called the Manhattan Beach Project. And uh, we, we call it that because we're very close to the beach here in Los Angeles, Manhattan Beach specifically. But more importantly, because of my early history in energy, I learned a lot about the Manhattan Project. And it actually was something that fascinated me. Yeah. yeah. And so, so I love the idea, a very clear goal, beat the Germans to the bomb. Let's get the best scientists in the world. Let's get the best engineers and the best managers, get them all together. And you put that kind of different intellectual capabilities together and then properly fund them and then get out of their way. And so, so what I've done at the Manhattan Beach Project is said, look, guys, we have to create a burger, piece of chicken, pork, et cetera, that is indistinguishable from animal protein. That's the goal, right? And we're not creating an alternative or a substitute. I don't think about it that way. I think about meat, not in terms of its origin, that it has to come from a chicken, cow, or pig, but rather its composition. What is meat? Meat is really five things. And people always ask me, was there sort of a moment, an epiphany? And if there, if there was one, and I'm sort of more on the Stephen Johnson side of this around innovation, that is kind of a slow hunch that you let marinate inside your mind. But in this case, it was kind of a breakthrough for me to start thinking about in terms of composition. And, and, and meat is really five things. It's amino acids, it's lipids, it's trace minerals, it's vitamins, and it's water. By the way, that's what your body is too, right? So it's something that we all share, all, all of our living biological systems. And so those things are not exclusive to the animal. They're abundant in plants. And so what we're doing is feeding plant material to animals, the animals using their biology, digestive tract, et cetera, to convert those into the form of muscle. But we can take those same core parts directly from plants and use our system, which is heating, cooling, and pressure to do what? Convert them into the form of muscle, right? And so what it's going to take is three things. Let's get it to be indistinguishable from animal protein. Let's get the nutrition to be so far superior 
that it's absolutely clear to every consumer that this is really something they should be consuming. And third, let's drop the price below animal protein. You get those three things, and I think it becomes an unusual customer who says, you know what, tastes just like it, better for me and cheaper, I'm still not going to eat it. You still have the greatest force in the world that we all deal with on a regular basis, which is called inertia. Yes. Right? I mean, like, so let's talk about first how close you are to meeting those three goals and then whether you think that's really enough. You know, what you just said was so interesting because I was literally just having had this book in my hand and I was reading uh, Edwin Land, the founder of uh, Polaroid, who I just admire so much. And uh, he said exactly what you just said. It, it, he said it was it, the most difficult thing for an innovator is not to get the invention to be, uh, to not overcome kind of direct opposition, but rather overcome indifference. <laughs> yeah. So for me, you know, the thing that, that I really got clear on very early on was that you're not going to browbeat or moralize your way to this issue. People don't want to hear it. I consume meat growing up. I love fried chicken. I love burgers. I love McDonald's. I love KFC. All these places that we're so fortunate to serve. I grew up eating Pizza Hut, et cetera. And so let's figure out how to enable people to continue to eat what they love. I feel so strongly about that. I trademarked the phrase, eat what you love, right? And so it's part of our culture. It's part of who we are. We grew up eating it. Generations have celebrated uh, uh, meat as a central part of our diet. So uh, the goal here is to use technology to make a seamless transition. And instead of using nutritionists or dietitians, et cetera, to make my case, uh, I've used athletes. Uh, because there's something beautiful that goes on there. You know, marketing can be hard, but it can be really easy if you're telling the truth. <laughs> and, and, and we're telling the truth here in the sense that we see all these athletes consuming our products and going to a plant-based diet, and all of a sudden, they're recovering more quickly. You know, I just had DeAndre Jordan here yesterday. He's a tremendous athlete, plays for the Nets. And uh, he was telling me he really doesn't ice that much anymore because the inflammation in his body is down so much because he's plant-based. Chris Paul was here over the summer. Chris now is going over to Phoenix to play, but uh, he was saying, you know what, sometimes I forget to ice, right? Because you're not putting the inflammatory agents that are in animal protein in their bodies, right? We have to remember something about animal meat. It's not there necessarily for us to eat. It's there for the animal to do work, right? Just like our muscles. So when, when you think about it that way, there's all these things in that meat that are there for that function, but aren't necessarily great for our bodies. So we're creating meat that takes those things out, right? So the things obviously like cholesterol, heme iron, heteroplastic amines, all these things that are of concern to the medical community, we have basically taken out of our products. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US, which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, every crisis creates opportunities and great challenges spark even greater innovation. How should leaders make the most of the current crisis and the current challenge? Alan, if I look at our own organization at Deloitte, we have over 300,000 professionals around the globe who have virtualized the firm overnight, you know, maintaining continuity of exceptional service to our clients. And we're advising our clients right now to devote the right energy to each phase of what lies ahead. There is certainly the near term of responding and recovering, but after that, you wanna be positioned to thrive. Yeah, that's really interesting, Joe. We're not 
going to return to normal. We're preparing for a new normal. We are, and while it is unfortunate that these challenging and tragic circumstances are serving as the catalyst, there can be no doubt that the new ways of working, the new ways of delivering within a complex value chain are going to fundamentally change the way in which work is accomplished forever. Joe, thanks for being part of it, and thanks for your sponsorship of this podcast. Alan, it's a privilege. So, you know, if you're if you're going to tackle the environmental piece of this problem, you've got to deal with China because China is a rapidly rising country. And if if the Chinese decide to eat meat as much as we do, uh, then the environment has a serious problem. So I know you're spending a lot of time there. What are you finding? You know, what's interesting, first of all, I, I love the culture. Uh, I, I want to take my family over there this past March. So obviously it didn't happen for obvious reasons. But um, I was over there a couple of years ago. And I was in a cab and the cab drivers were educated enough to, to speak to me in English. And I asked him, I said, what, what, what do you guys think about in terms of climate? He says, we don't. Now that was him and that was his particular sector of the population. And I'm sure that's not fully representative, but we have to figure out a way to get that economy to go and not follow and make our mistake. Right. And so when I, I was much younger, I would travel and I travel around Indonesia and stuff like that. And I remember, going down these roads and seeing no telephone poles at all. And what had happened is they just leapfrogged landlines. Everybody was using mobile phones. So we have to figure out a way to help economies that are still emerging to not replicate the animal agriculture model. And so that's why I'm investing so much in China. Next year, we're going to build what I think will be the largest plant-based meat facility in the world uh, in Yaxing, which is about two hours outside of uh, uh, Shanghai. But you know, again, this is part of the issue about climate that is actually an interesting moral issue, right, is that we've used our allocation completely, right? The Western developed world, right? So we have to figure out how to both reduce ours and then help others uh, not constrain their economies. So we started this podcast in February and pretty much every CEO we've had on since then has had an amazing COVID story to tell. And I'm pretty sure you do too. Just looking at your stock price, it's been a, a roller coaster ride, but, but tell, us, tell us what COVID has done to your business. You know, a couple things. One, um, I don't think you need to sacrifice your health to do something good for the environment. What I mean by that is we don't take the health issue here at Beyond lightly. We believe that people, when they bite into a plant-based burger, believe they're doing something better for their bodies. So it's our obligation to make sure that our products are very, very healthy. And so in COVID, as people started to realize that comorbidity is an issue, you know, those that are dying tend to have pre-existing conditions. People are focusing more on their health and it's creating more of a dialogue around what we're eating and, 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 and things of that nature. That has helped us. Uh, what has hurt us is the uh, food service business. And understandably, these guys and, and gals who run these companies, they are uh, streamlining their menus and they should be doing that, right? Uh, they're trying to protect cash flow, et cetera. So it's not a great time to launch new things, right? You know, Pizza has done that into great success. Duncan has done it with our crust of great success. But but in general, it's, it's harmed us on that side. Now, we're starting to see that thaw, and we're starting to see some of these big launches come back, which I'm really excited about. But how do the two businesses compare, the food service, restaurant, et cetera, versus retail grocery stores? We were 50-50 going into the year, retail food service, and all of a sudden that just shut off. And so we went to, like, you know, I don't know, something as, as crazy as 90-10, and now we're back at 75-25. And if you think about we're two-thirds of our exposure in the – uh, food service sector, 
uh, is to places like universities, hotels, places that, that are not open right now. Right. And so we were particularly hard hit. Yeah. Uh, you you uh, reported your third quarter earnings fairly recently. Disappointment to the uh, disappointment to the market. There's some question about what McDonald's is up to with its McPlant burger. Any of that a, a, a problem for you? Not at all. I mean, I, um, you know, I spend a lot of time looking at companies that I admire. And I, I, right before that earnings call, I, I remember I went back and read um, Bezos' uh, I think it was his 2000 letter to shareholders and it started with ouch, <laughs> but I couldn't agree more with the perspective there uh, that this is all about the long term. Like it, I think it, it's really silly to try to manage your company quarter to quarter and I don't. And so, you know, I could have pulled back on China. I'm spending a lot in China. I'm spending a lot in the Netherlands, uh, our new facilities and new people and all these other things. Again, it's going to hurt our P&L in the short term. I don't care. This is something that we are building for the long term. Our goal is to be a uh, company that's global protein provider. Tyson's about a $44 billion revenue company. I, I don't see any reason why we can't be there and then more. Uh, and so I, it wouldn't make any sense for me to think about this from a quarter to quarter basis. Yeah, but that raises a, a really big question. That's a good question for the topics we talk about here on Leadership Next. You made the decision not to go into government, not to go in the nonprofit sector, but to go into business, yeah. which tends to be very competitive. You've got your competitors. I mean, the one that's most often cited is Impossible Foods. But, you know, if your goal is really to deal with the agricultural environment, health access, competition should be a good thing. The more competitors, the better. Competition is a great thing, as long as I'm winning. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't mind competitors as long as you're winning. Yeah, I mean, we'll think about the NBA if there are no other teams. It'd be a very boring league. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Ethan, uh, for spending some time with us, and, and good luck. <laughs> thank you so much. Really fun to be on the show. Thanks. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 